In a series of messages that we've entitled, How to Be a Person of Influence, this morning is installment number two, A Person of Influence Seizes Opportunities. Again, Lord, we ask for your blessing this morning. We ask that you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody need a Bible, raise your hand. You'll be lost without one. We've got a few that need one. We'll get you one. You'll keep your hand up in the air and we'll uh, make sure you get one. Joshua chapter 2, the sixth book of the Bible. At 22 years old, I had never flown on an airplane. In fact, I'd never been north of the Smoky Mountains, never been west of the Georgia-Alabama state line. Little did I know, though, of the changes that were about to occur in my life. In the months leading up to my 22nd birthday, I had concluded that God was calling me to be a pastor. I just wasn't sure how to proceed. I had been reading about Calvary Chapel and the spiritual awakening that God had started among the hippies who had flocked to Southern California. I was amazed that God was using a church to reach folks I thought were unreachable. And it was happening by the simplest of methods. The teaching of God's Word and the work of God's Spirit was changing lives, changing culture. Calvary Chapel's music and message were exciting and relevant and powerful. It seemed like the book of Acts was being reenacted. If there was a church I wanted to be a part of, it was this Calvary Chapel. Well, toward the end of March 1980, I picked up the telephone And I called the Calvary Chapel Bible College. I talked to the secretary there in Twin Peaks, California. All I did was call to inquire about the college just to get some information. She told me, though, that the day before, the spring semester had been full. But that very morning, a student from Europe had called and had canceled. Then she said, if you want to come, I'll save the spot for you. Wow. Later I learned that the Bible college had a waiting list of students. And why this secretary jumped me to the head of the line, I'll never know. Could be she had always wanted to meet a genuine southern redneck. I'm not sure, but whatever it was, she bumped me to the head of the line. Perhaps it was God. But a window of opportunity suddenly opened. Now you see, this was the end of March, and the spring semester started the 1st of April. I didn't even know if I had time to book an airline ticket. And there were other reasons that made me hesitate. I had bills to pay. I loved this lady named Kathy I'd been dating, and I hoped to get married. And I had never flown on an airplane. That bothered me. In fact, the highest I had ever been was the top of Stone Mountain. I didn't know how to open a parachute. I had never been to Mississippi, let alone California. California? I wasn't sure I spoke the language. Does it require a passport? Do you have to get shots to go to California? I wasn't sure. And yet something inside told me that God was opening this door. It was no accident that I had called when I did. And this specific secretary, it was no accident that she had answered the phone. God had swung open a door, but it would shut soon. All doors do. You see, other students wanted this spot. If I said no, there was no guarantee that I would ever attend. The next semester wasn't until the fall. I might have gotten married by then. 
gone into business, made millions and millions of dollars, been spared all the stresses of ministry, and lived happily. No, I would have lived miserably ever after. For I knew what God had called me to do. And so that morning, I seized an opportunity. I walked through a door that God had opened for me, and I said yes. Ten days later, I was in California at the Bible college. And my life and the life, lives of the folks that I've ministered to over the last 29 years were forever altered. You see, here's the big point I want to make to you today. A person of influence seizes their opportunities. He or she doesn't allow a door God opens to slam shut. You see, opportunities come with a statute of limitations. They don't last forever. There's an Arabic proverb, four things come not back. The spoken word, the sped arrow, the past life, and the neglected opportunity. This is why when God opens an opportunity, it has to be seized. You see, we're in a series of messages entitled, How to Be a POI, a Person of Influence. In other words, what are the habits of influential people? Last week, we noted the first habit, a person of influence makes preparation. But here's another habit. He or she seizes opportunities. A POI walks through the doors that God swings open. And we see a vivid example of this lesson here in Joshua chapter 2. Speaking of opportunities, the Hebrews were on the verge of a major opportunity. Camped in a grove of acacia trees east of the Jordan River, their sights were set on conquering the land that God had promised them. By the way, Joshua chapter 2 has all the ingredients of one of those Jack Bauer episodes of 24. There's intel and intrigue. There's spies and their lies. There's hideouts and their cover-ups. The chapter begins when Joshua dispatches two agents from the special ops unit of the Israeli army to go on a covert operation to collect intelligence for the Jericho invasion. How does that sound for an intro to Joshua chapter 2? Verse 1 begins, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly. Forty years earlier, Moses sent twelve spies. Ten of them returned with a negative report and spread unbelief among the Israelis. Two of the men, Caleb and Joshua himself, encouraged Israel to trust God. He would fight their battles. Through faith, they would conquer giants. The Israelis, though, believed the ten spies rather than the two. This time, Joshua doesn't bother with the ten spies. He just sends out two. He didn't want to repeat Moses' mistake. Who needs fearful men to tell us what we can't do? Joshua sends two men of faith to spy out the land. There's a Jewish legend that identifies these men as Caleb and as the high priest Eleazar. Now, whoever these spies were, Joshua knows they're going to back an all-out attack. And he instructs them, saying, Go view the land especially Jericho. They should focus on Jericho, just over the river. It was seven miles from the banks of the Jordan. Jericho was the first of Canaan's many city-states. And Jericho was heavily fortified. It consisted of seven acres 
surrounded by a double wall. We're told, so they went and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. During the day, these spies, they canvassed the city, mapping out the position of troops and locating fortifications, busy with all their reconnaissance. But at night, they needed a place to stay. And and here's where many people have questioned their actions. What are godly, faith-filled men doing bedding down in a whorehouse? Now think about this. First of all, Rahab was accustomed to lodging strangers. A brothel was the perfect place to protect your anonymity. And apparently, Rahab was sort of the D.C. madam of Jericho. Her clients were the politicians and the celebrities and the business leaders of the community. You see, Rahab was connected. These spies could glean information from Rahab's clients and from from her girls. Problem though is they got spotted. Verse 2. It was told the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Someone had ratted on Rahab. They reported the spies. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. Man, it was a tense moment. Jericho detectives are knocking on the door. They want to interrogate Rahab. They want to arrest these spies. We're told a little later that Rahab had hid the men on the rooftop. The roofing material in Jericho was thatch. And so she had buried them there on the rooftop in the stalks of flax. I'm glad neither Caleb or Eleazar were allergic to flax. One sneeze, maybe a little heavy scratching, and it would have been curtains for both them and Rahab. Well, after hiding the spy, she answers the door. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. Rahab lies for the spies. She tells the cops that the two Israelis, they left town. But if the king hurries, if the men hurry, they might catch them. You might say she sends the Jericho police on a wild Jews chase. But it worked. Verse 7, then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. The spies would now be safe, at least until the posse had returned. Now, so far, Rahab's faith has been expressed by her actions, but now she puts her faith into words. Verse 8, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Notice, this is 40-year-old news. Rahab is confirming Joshua's report when he spied out the land for Moses 40 years earlier. 
The Canaanites were afraid of the Jews. Notice what's happened. For the last four decades, the Jews have been wandering around the desert afraid of the men of Jericho, while the men of Jericho have been held up behind walls afraid of the Jews and their God. Talk about a missed opportunity. And the citizens of Jericho had been paying attention lately. Rahab has heard some news, some recent reports. She adds, And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. From the travelers that had visited her brothel, the Jericho madam had been charting the course of these Jews. She had been charting them. She knew she had been following their progress and what God had done for them. In verse 11, Rahab declares her faith again. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Here a hooker becomes a believer. Rahab has concluded that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. Neither her soiled past nor her sordid occupation stifled her faith. And now Rahab seizes her opportunity. She realizes that Jericho will fall and that Israel will conquer. And so she tries to position herself on the winning side. God's team always wins. This is why you're smart to join God's team when you can. She asks the spies, Now therefore I beg you, Swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house. And give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. She pleads for mercy for herself and for her family. See, this is amazing. Remember, Rahab ran a brothel. Her life was an episode of sex in the city. She was astute enough to know what was happening outside the walls of her world. But there was nothing she could do to save herself until now. Now was her opportunity. Suddenly, she's presented with an opportunity to change her situation. She rises up. She climbs up to the rooftop. And she seizes the possibilities. And they impact her life for eternity. You see the spies reply. Our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Imagine, salvation comes to a whorehouse. A hooker gets a place in God's family. Hey, hey, don't make any mistake about it. Rahab sold her body for sexual favors. She had fallen off the ladder of morality long ago. It was not her lily-white goodness or her perfect purity that saved her. It was her faith. And it's by faith any of us get saved. You need to know God sends opportunities not only to the pure and pious, but to prostitutes and madams, to johns and pimps, to sinners. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 shows the extent to which God is willing to go to salvage a sinner. You see, Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus, God's own sinless son. And you can read it right there in Matthew chapter 1, right in the middle of the pedigree of the purest. Guess whose name you find? Rahab. 
a hooker from Jericho. A Canaanite madam joins God's family tree. Talk about amazing grace. It wasn't because of her morality or her purity. She had none. God gave her an opportunity. And she walked through an open door before it closed. And it was as simple as that. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window. For her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. You see, in ancient cities like Jericho, houses or apartments were actually built into the city walls. And she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. Hey, guys, just lay low for three days. And then it will be safe to travel. And so the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. That scarlet cord. It may have been the rope the spies used to repel down the wall. Whatever it was, their salvation becomes Rahab's salvation. In fact, the scarlet cord speaks of our salvation also. Think of the blood of Jesus trickling down from the cross. It's our cord of scarlet. Sins are forgiven. We inherit a seat at God's table when we embrace His scarlet cord. Well, the spies continue to talk about this upcoming invasion. They say, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street His blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from our oath which you made us swear. But then she said, according to your word, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Notice, she didn't wait You know, she could have assumed that it would be at least three days before Israel attacked, but she didn't. She hung that cord in the window immediately. Why? Today is the day of salvation. Why put it off? Rahab seizes her opportunity and she acts. In fact, for some of you, this is your morning to seize an opportunity and give your life to God. Receive Jesus. Trust in the scarlet cord that grants forgiveness, trust in the power of Jesus to save, bring your whole life under His roof, and live forever with Him. Whatever you do, don't delay. You see, open doors don't stay open forever. Now verse 22, we wrap up the story. The spies departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way, but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands. For indeed, all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. They're scared, Joshua. We can take them. Now once again... There's so much in this chapter. So many places here where we can sink our shovel and dig for truth. But there's one lesson that I want to hammer down on and emphasize this morning. And that's this. People of influence 
seize opportunities. Like Rahab, you don't have to be a church girl or an altar boy or some goody two-shoes for God to bestow on you an opportunity. But when that opportunity comes, you have to seize it by faith. For years, I coached Little League Baseball. And I always told my players that baseball was a lot like life. Say you're the right fielder. You trot out to your position every inning. And you never get a ball hit close to you. In fact, you can play the whole game and never be involved in a meaningful play until bottom of the ninth, two outs, ducks on the pond, bases loaded, and a batter strikes a ball high and deep. Suddenly, the ball is sailing over your head. You haven't had a ball hit to you the whole day, yet now the game is on the line, and the ball gets hit in your direction, and it's up to you to make the catch. This is your big opportunity to be a hero. Now, now here's where this week's lesson piggybacks on last week. Have you made preparation? You see, whether you've been ready the previous 130 pitches now determines whether you're prepared for the one pitch that counts. Suddenly, it's up to you to seize the opportunity. And this is the way life works. You get up every morning. You drive into the office. You do your nondescript job. Put in your 8 to 5. Fight the awful traffic home. Then you do it again tomorrow. And nothing of any significance ever seems to happen until one day a door opens to speak for Jesus or to help a person in need or to better your family or to come to the aid of your children. Suddenly, this is your opportunity to be a hero to your wife or your coworker, or your kids or your church or to a stranger. Did you make preparation? And will you seize this opportunity before the door shuts? You see, it's not every day you'll hear a pastor point to a harlot as an example. But like Rahab, we need to trust in the scarlet cord. Guys, forget about your perverted past. Bury your guilt. Shun those feelings of unworthiness. Let's all rise up in faith and take advantage of the opportunity God gives us. People of influence make it a habit to seize opportunities. Now, in the story of Rahab, we learn learn what it takes to walk through the open doors. Here's what it requires. It takes faith. But I want to point out to you three elements of Rahab's faith. You see, this woman, she had real faith. Twice in the New Testament, in Hebrews 11 and in James chapter 2, Rahab's faith is commended. She's held up as an example of genuine faith. By studying her faith, we can discover what faith might look like in our lives. At first, Rahab's faith causes her, write these two words down, to rise up. Faith causes her to rise up. Next, her faith prompts her to speak out. Speak out. Finally, Her faith enables her to hang on, to hang on. The kind of faith that seizes opportunities, rises up, speaks out, and hangs on. In James chapter 2, the apostle describes a faith 
that, that works, that's active. James argues that a faith that doesn't express itself in action isn't genuine faith. And he uses Rahab as an example. James 2 verse 25 tells us, Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? He's saying that Rahab's faith looked like work. Her faith was active, not passive. She rose up and she acted in ways that harmonized with her faith. She hid the spies among the stalks though the cops were stalking her. She opened the door to the detectives though they could close and shut her doors. She lied to the investigators though her lie could send her to jail. Rahab's faith created risks for her that were real and grave. You see, faith can be dangerous. An active faith that takes initiatives isn't always safe. Randy Hawkins was playing third base for his church softball team. The problem was that Randy was a 40-ish person playing on a team of 20-somethings. One inning, a line drive was hit just over Randy's head. He leaped up into the air to make the catch, but he couldn't snag the ball. It was a double. After the inning, he and the left fielder were jogging to the dugout. When Randy's friend held up his, his thumb and his forefinger, and he said to Randy, he said, that much. Randy turned to him and said, yeah, you're right. I missed that catch by that much. His friend said, no, you didn't get off the ground, but that much. Hey, the story of Rahab teaches us that when you seize an opportunity, it calls for a faith that rises up. It's time to step up and shake the routine. Always remember, the same actions done the same way will yield the same results. That's why when an opportunity arises, it's time to take a leap of faith. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab takes a lot of initiative. She thinks of the rooftop and hides the spies. She's quick on her feet when she's interrogated. She asks the spies for mercy. Hey, when it's your turn to seize an opportunity, always ask yourself, what part do I play? Then rise up and take some action. There's an old Paul, Paul Overstreet song. Uh, listen to the lyrics. You've got to take some action. Put some motion to the plan. You've got to take some action. Make a move while you still can. You can twiddly D or twiddly dumb, but nothing's going to happen just to twiddling your thumbs. You've got to take some action. This is how faith behaves. Real faith isn't afraid to take action. But there's another aspect of real faith. It speaks out. To take advantage of the opportunities God sends us, we can't stay silent. Influential people don't cl clam up when it's time to speak up. You see, Rahab, she couldn't just be nice to these spies. Just offering them protection on her rooftop only got her so far. To really take advantage of the opportunity she'd been given, she had to verbalize her faith. She had to ask for help. You see, life is not like an auction house where everybody has a little placard with their own personalized number. And all you have to do is just sort of wave the placard and you put in your bid no real life is more like a street corner it's loud and it's noisy and it's chaotic and nobody pays any attention to anyone unless someone rises up and is bold enough to speak up if 
Fast forward 1,500 years to the city of Jericho at the time of Jesus. There's a blind man named Bartimaeus. He's huddled in the street. He stays off the edge of the sidewalk so he won't get trampled, so people won't step on him. He sticks out a broken cup into the darkness, hoping someone drops in a few mites or a couple of denarii. Suddenly, though, Bartimaeus hears the news. Jesus is coming down his street. And old blind Bartimaeus, he starts screaming. He starts shouting at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is his opportunity. In fact, the multitude around him, they tell him to shut up. Hey, you're too loud, man. You're a nuisance. Their rebuke doesn't faze Bartimaeus. He turns it up a few decibels. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You don't let an opportunity to meet God slip by because you're afraid to speak up. As it turns out, Bartimaeus was glad he spoke up. Luke 18 tells us that Jesus heard his cries and opened his eyes. He seized an opportunity. This was also Rahab's faith. She she waits until dark so she won't expose their hiding places. And then she slips up on the rooftop to speak to these spies. Understand, something happens to faith when it goes from our heads to our hearts. That's an important change. It goes from intellectual understanding to a deep desire and motivation. But that's not the only metamorphosis that faith experiences. For something else happens to faith when it goes from our heart to our lips. What was a desire morphs into a dedication and a commitment and a seriousness when it gets to the mouth. This is why Paul writes to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Two organs are involved in faith, the heart and the mouth. Faith starts in the heart, but it gains strength in the mouth. Faith is conceived in secret in the heart, but the mouth brings it out into the open and declares it to the world. This is why my old church talked about a believer's, quote, profession of faith. They understood that to seize an opportunity, you have to profess. You have to speak up. People of influence understand that actions speak louder than words. This is why they rise up before they speak out. But a POI also realizes that if he or she wants to seize their opportunity, they've got to say so. When an opportunity presents itself to gain from God or to do for God or to take a stand or to help a friend, have faith like Rahab and speak out. And lastly, Rahab's faith. And I'm talking real faith. It hangs on. Notice again verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. I picture Rahab and her girls bracing themselves. They're holding on to one end of the rope, tight and taut, while the two Hebrew spies are repelling down the wall on the other end of the same rope. She's holding on. And she's holding on in more ways than one. You see, the promise of these spies were her only hope. 
and she's now helping them escape. Will they remember her when they return? Will they recall the promise that they've made? In the confusion of an invasion, will they even look for a scarlet cord? You see, Rahab now has nothing to hold on to but this promise. Believe me, she's holding on to that rope all right. She held on to it long after the spies departed. Listen to this poem. They they made their way from your roof, bound by promise and sealed with a sign to wave when the day would come. Jericho, Jericho, your dead will pile like wet leaves choking gutters. Walls will fall, stone blood and ash. And in the harlot's window, a scarlet cord made of midnight oaths will be all that remains. Believe me, Rahab kept that cord fixed to her windowsill and in her heart. Real faith, Rahab faith, continues to hang on. Even after the excitement has dimmed and after the words have been exchanged and after the guests have left and there are no more traces of the promise, real faith, it hangs on. Listen to the last verse of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We persevere in our faith. We hang on. We hold on. And the next chapter, Hebrews 11, mentions the people who persevered in their faith, who did hold on. And one of those examples happens to be Rahab. Verse 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Rahab took advantage of an opportunity, and she has inspired believers ever since. You see, influential people, They make preparation, and then they seize opportunities. By faith, they rise up, and they speak out, and they hang on. Like Rahab, I hope you will seize your opportunities. Be a POI, a person of influence. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for the encouragement it brings. Lord, for someone here today, today is their day. This is their morning. Lord, they no longer have to live under the weight of their sin and their guilt. Today they can be free. They can be forgiven. They they can be a part of your family. They can have a seat at your table. Today is their day. Lord, I pray that they would seize their opportunity. Lord, as, as we have communion, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning that needs Jesus, as they come forward for communion, if they'll just reach out to Pastor James or reach out to one of the elders here or reach out to Marvin, Lord, that they would just reach out and that they would speak out and speak up and express their need and ask you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Lord, we pray that someone would give their life to you this morning. We we believe this is their day. This is their opportunity. May they seize it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. We ask that you bless us now as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.